This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and this is another edition of Bank Nerd Corner. So we are thrilled to be joined by our absolute favorite banking and fintech editor, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, hello. Hey, Alex, how are you? How is the basketball game and the other stuff that happened in Las Vegas? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, as you know, I can't tell you everything that happened in Las Vegas. But (laughs) I will say that, and actually really nothing happened, but I will say that the basketball game was super fun. There are really good athletes working in fintech there are annoyingly yeah there's like annoyingly young in shape people in fintech there are people who sort of sandbagged about how good they are at basketball in fintech but they're all very nice and very good competitors good sports we we, we, we refereed ourselves we would call their own fouls didn't have to. I brought a whistle in case I needed to play the role of referee, but I didn't. So um, you didn't want to be the person who had to impose order at the pickup basketball game. Yeah, I really didn't, you know. And my only thing was like, you know, if you cross me up or like make me fall or anything, I'll write bad things about you in the newsletter. Mm-hmm. So people took it easy mm-hmm. on me, which was nice. Yep. And you know, most importantly, everyone walked away with full health. We were all very tired at the end, but like there were no uh-huh. sprained ankles or you know, torn MCLs or anything like that. So it was, despite us not all being in terrific shape, we had a lot of fun and we were able to avoid major injuries. So that was definitely the highlight. You know, the rest of Vegas was just, you know, money 2020. Uh, It's uh, you and your, I don't know how many people were there, 15,000 closest friends Uh in fintech. It's a lot of people. I have a disturbingly detailed knowledge of the Venetian and Palazzo hotels now. Mm -hmm. Congrats. And now Treasure Island, which I uh, was the hotel of choice this year, which is not my favorite hotel, but, you know, trying to be fiscally responsible. So that was good. And, you know, the content and the discussions were all really good. I won't belabor it because I've written and podcasted about that elsewhere. But a couple of the topics we have on our agenda today will be ones that definitely heard about at the show. So, no, it was good. How was your event? What event did you go to again? Remind us. So again, it was the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, their community bank conference that's held in conjunction with the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. Yes. And it was fun. I like did all my homework ahead of time and read mm. the papers. So I didn't have to, you know, so, you know, they present the papers, but I'd already kind of read them and I was familiar with them. Kia always does her reading ahead of time. You should see the level of prep she puts in for this podcast. I mean, it's obvious, but what like, am I going to tweet about at 11 p.m. if it's not these accounting and research papers? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I get text messages from you late at night going like, hey, you should like read this. I I think I wish I could like schedule send my text <laughs> messages because I schedule send my emails. Yeah. And I can schedule send my slacks and make people think that I'm a, a industrious person. morning yeah, bird. Yeah, yeah. But in fact, I'm a night owl reading bank stuff that late at night and I can't the tweet or the text you can't hide. And then mm. you know, I, I think I do some of my best tweeting at 11 p.m. Totally agree. But my like my bank nerd accomplishment was that I got to say hello to Fed Governor Michelle Bowman. Nice. And because I've never met her before and she's never met me before, the only thing I could really think to say in that moment was I'm a really big fan of your speeches. <laughs> I think is, like, I feel like that's how I, you know, I'm familiar with her her work. Sure, her sure. work is speeches. Yeah, um, yeah. And the statements. And so... How did she react to that? I think she was really, she was really honored, but mm. I think it's, I mean, how would you react to someone saying like, I really like your speeches? I don't know. I don't know. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I also shared with her that I wrote like basically one of her speeches about competition and bank M&A led me to be a little bit more curious about how that's kind of calculated. And I wrote an entire magazine article, which is even kind of weirder to tell a Fed governor that you wrote an entire magazine article based on one of her speeches. Yeah. But then the next day, she asked me what I thought about her speech. And I was like, I think you said some really interesting things about uninsured deposits. And I'm really excited to see what comes out of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve about uninsured deposit liquidity risks. Wow. So real nerdy stuff. Yeah. You got to nerd out with like one of your... um, I mean, Michelle Bowman has come up on this podcast before, so she, getting to yes, meet her in person, that's a pretty big deal. No, that is very cool. I tried not to fangirl, and I don't think I successfully did it, and I possibly did it in the weirdest way possible. Oh, uh, that's really funny. Well, I had several similar experiences of getting to meet people in person for the first time, and I was like, I'm a big fan, you know? So it was definitely, there's definitely an element of that with all in-person stuff. I think especially when we're so remote, like by default these mm-hmm. days, that like when you get to meet someone that you've wanted to meet for a long time in person, it's extra special, I feel like. Yeah, I totally agree. And I felt like I, I'm not like a policymaker. Like we weren't like at a round table where I got to right. be like, here's all everything I know about banks. I was just like, hi, I'm a person. I really like your speeches. <laughs> I'm a human. I'm a fan. Well, I mean, she probably doesn't get that as much as, you know. She should get it more, but if she doesn't get it enough, I'm glad I could do it. Well, she does say interesting stuff relative to many other folks in the policymaking arena. I always find Mm -hmm. her comments to be comprehensible and like really like pointed and trying to like, you know, establish a viewpoint. So I I probably would have fanboyed out a little bit myself if I had seen her, although probably not nearly as much as you. So you were the right person to go at that conference. Well, I wanted to pitch a couple of topics to you. Hopefully we will not, we will both have more topics this time around and not go on for 40, you know, an hour 15. Yeah. Okay, Alex, my first topic for you Mm. was, did you have debit interchange on your 2023 regulation bingo card? I didn't because I think I was more focused on like Durban 2.0 credit card stuff. Credit cards, yeah. Yeah, I was more kind of credit card interchange focused. Uh, Debit interchange, I thought we were kind of settled on, but I guess not. Yeah. Yeah, so you are referring to the proposed congressional. I um, am, yes. Like r- law, or I guess that's what Congress does, um, around debit or credit interchange. Yeah, like they're working on credit interchange, but like, you know, the state of Congress is such that anything that's like happening in Congress right now, you're like, okay, I can probably wait till like 10 years from now for this to actually turn into a thing that actually happens because it's not right. very productive these days. So uh, yeah, no, I think I just kind of written off in 2023 that anything was going to happen, but something may be happening. Tell us what's something going on. Something may be happening. Yeah. So in late October, the Federal Reserve released a proposal to lower the maximum interchange fee that large debit card issuers can receive for debit card transactions. And then Subsequently, they want to establish a regular process for updating the maximum amount every other year going forward. Mm-hmm. So after, and you'll recall that, you know, the first and last time they did this was in 2011 via the Durban Amendment, where they basically, you know, cap interchange, debit interchange income for large banks, which was defined as $10 billion. And, you know, they, a lot has been written about every single thing that happened as a result of that debit interchange cap. And I think this is a really interesting that they've decided to revisit this and have decided basically like the cap or the number is still too high between 2011 and 2023. Mm-hmm. So, you know, $188 billion of payments were processed on debit cards in 2021. This payment type has the highest rate of dollar payment growth. 
relative to every other form of payment available to consumers. And then the Wall Street Journal reported that banks subject to the cap received $16.6 billion of these fees in 2022. So this is the amount of money that they might get less of. And so, you know, there's this whole like kind of calculation that goes into the debit interchange cap and the board has the authority to adjust the cap based on what's reasonably necessary to make the allowance for costs incurred by debit card issuers and in preventing fraud that's related to debit card transactions that the issuer might bear. Yeah. In 2021, the Fed reported that transaction processing costs of the average debit card transaction had declined by 50% between 2009 and uh, 21, Mm -hmm. from 7.7 cents per transaction to 3.9 cents. And, you know, I think there's like, you know, the joke here is that similar to how productive people get more work, um, efficient processors get their fees reduced. Yeah. I think when I'm, you know, kind of maybe, and I always should always start these podcasts by saying this is my own opinion. I'm just a reporter who has some opinions. But (laughs) these are facts delivered by Kia Haslett from on high. (laughs) Well, I mean, what I, this is a real opinion right over here, but (laughs) that it almost seems like the Fed doesn't really think this should be a place where banks make money. Yeah. That this is more of like, a service that's provided and is provided for free rather than banks shouldn't have incentives to make money around this and they shouldn't be trying to, every time they make an efficiency, that efficiency would then be reflected in the cost that might be changing every two years. Mm -hmm. And so what this, you know, how the the formula would change is that a $50 debit transaction would decline from 24.5 cents that the issuer would get to 17.7 cents Mm. under the proposal. And then the Fed actually writes this with, as far as I can tell, a straight face that merchants may in turn pass some of the portion of their savings of lower interchange no, customers. No, no, no. So they did Alex, not really question, say that, did they? It's in it's in there. I, no. I didn't say it verbatim, but I, I said the words just in a different order. Uh. Um, so Alex, my first question for you is what are you planning on doing with all the savings from your interchange income that you'll be receiving if this proposal passes? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good question because I was actually able to put away all the savings that I need for all three of my kids' college funds in the future. Oh my God. Just based on the debit interchange savings since 2011 that I've been uh-huh. able to collect because merchants awesome. passed it all along to me. So I don't even know. I mean, you said what's well, going to go from, you know, for a $50 transaction down from $0.24 cents to $0.17. Cent. Uh-huh. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean... I'm going to quit my job, I think. This is, like, amazing. I'm so excited. No, obviously, I'm being facetious. I know that you were, too. They don't pass the savings on, man. Like, like what? Th- that, like... Alex! The, the one thing, I feel like... You don't think since 2011, we've benefited oh. from the savings of debit energy? We lost free checking. <laughs> we didn't get lower prices at the checkout counter. We did not. And here's the thing. Just, to, like, to be totally clear about this... This was a thing we knew was going to happen before they did this. Like, just to be totally clear, and like, I'm not going to like relitigate the entire like Durban Amendment and the process that led to it, but like, we knew at the time, based on the experience of other countries that had gone through this before us, that businesses are not in the business of giving money to their customers for free with nothing in exchange. That's not what they do. And so, yeah, no, I don't think that any of this is going to get passed on. I don't think it's at all surprising that the merchants that drive this discussion and drive everything relating to originally the Durban Amendment and then certainly the interpretation of this requirement at the Fed, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious to me, all of it is driven by 
I don't know. I think you can count on one hand the number of like large merchants who really care about this and who really benefit from it and try to optimize for it. It's, you know, everyone's yeah. favorites. It's Walmart, it's Amazon, it's Target. You know, I mean, it's the same set of companies that are doing this. And uh, I, the uh, irony of it to me is I actually, and this is a theory I have, I don't think most even merchants really care, to be totally honest really? with you. Like, I think they're fine. Like, they find, you know, the the they find interchange a little bit annoying, but they really value being able to accept debit cards and credit cards. I actually yeah. think, here's a proposal for you, Kia, are you ready? Okay. So imagine an alternative universe where it was credit card interchange that was capped and not debit card interchange. Oh, I like I'm going to bring I was going to bring that up, okay. but do not touch credit card. Like I agreed with you with like your read of the Durban 2.0. Yeah. And the less we talk about it, the better yeah. because that would crimp just so much of my personal spending and also how I travel like and yeah. It's kind of crazy that, like, as someone who only spends on her credit cards for reasons I have, I've already discussed, I'm always confused that people spend so much money on debit cards, and I was shocked to read about the payment volumes. Yeah. It kind of makes sense that this is target. This is where they're targeting it. But my understanding is that the big credit card issuers make hand over fist money from their credit card interchange. Yeah. And... The cards with the highest annual fees get the highest interchange from the merchant. Yeah. No. And so it's kind I of crazy that, yeah, that, that, that's just been allowed to happen. Well, and yeah. I mean, they're focused I, on debit. No, I think that's true, right? And I think if the Fed was really focused on consumers, and I don't, I mean, it's always funny when I hear like, regulators that are more like prudential regulators talk about consumer things. It's like, do you really like, I mean, I don't know that you really know even kind of what you're talking about or have thought through this deeply. I think when we were talking about before, you were sort of framing it as like they seem a little kind of incurious about the impact of this on consumers. I agree with that. Like they, they sort of toss this thing and like, oh, maybe consumers will also benefit from this. But like, I don't think they've really interrogated that idea closely because, you know, using this sort of like alternate universe framing, like what we should have is we should have a payment mechanism that doesn't allow consumers to get into hideous amounts of debt, but that does come with really generous rewards funded by interchange. So like imagine if like mm -hmm. debit cards, merchants had to pay a really high interchange rate for them, but debit cards are safe for consumers to use and consumers yeah. that want to like reap massive rewards from spending without going into debt would be able to use debit cards. And I feel like the challenge with like the kind of debit card, credit card handoff is I do think there is a portion of people who are drawn to credit cards for the rewards or the perks of the other things, but their brain isn't wired in such a way where they can handle credit cards responsibly and use them like a right. debit card. And so right. those folks end up getting into trouble largely because we've sort of regulated away the ability for issuers to give rewards to debit card users, but not to credit card users. So it's very, mm -hmm. it's this very weird set of incentives that we've kind of piled on each other. And yeah, no, I, I think this is stupid. I think your earlier point about the Fed lowering it based on the sort of lower cost of fraud, like that's crazy to me, honestly, because like the incentive is really for issuers to not care about debit card fraud honestly i cut some of this out i would cut out i cut out a lot of math like fractional penny math yeah, that was yeah. in the proposal you should definitely go look it up because it, it does kind of include like the new breakdown mm. of what the new interchange cap would be mm -hmm. and so 
of the like 17.7 cents mm-hmm. on that debit interchange, like the fraud prevention portion is going from one cent to 1.3 cents. Mm. So in the new formula, they are slightly increasing mm-hmm. the fraud prevention allocation, mm-hmm. but the overall net effect is that there's just less money for issuers. Also, I mean, like the Fed wrote this with a straight face that they wrote that the proposal could generate benefits to the extent that merchants pass along savings from the lower debit card acceptance, but could also have negative effects to the extent that covered issuers increase fees associated with debit cards or deposit accounts. The net effect of on consumers, both individually and in the aggregate, will depend on how these two effects predominates, which would t- in turn depend on many factors and mm. is difficult to predict. And I just want to say, like, again, super, super my opinion. There's actually a lot of data, and we can, like, see before and after what happened mm-hmm. in at least the bank space mm-hmm. when this inner Durban went into effect. It did not just create an entire branch of fintech. It did not just create the banking as a service industry yeah. as we experience it today. It also changed community bank M&A, which could have potentially, you know, there's a criticism with M&A that it reduces a community, some communities' access to financial institutions, and it incentivized banks to get bigger really, really fast at yeah. the ten billion dollar threshold. It destroyed free checking at big banks, which yep. have most of our retail accounts. Yep. It increased, you know, like for a while there was an interest in using consumer fees, like on these accounts, to make up the lost interchange. Well, and then consumers freaked out about it, and then they had right. to drop those fees too. And then the thing that happens is then money making gambits get pushed into sort of less obvious places, right? Like we didn't want the $5 fee from Bank of America, but everyone's overdraft fees went up through the roof, right? I mean, there's been studies on that too, that like overdraft income increased to make up some of these differences. Exactly. And then, you know, it obviously totally incentivized the creation of these like very lucrative credit card rewards, which has then created, you know, there was a Federal Reserve research paper that published in 2023 that found the use of credit card rewards at merchants is akin to an aggregate annual redistribution of $15 billion from like less educated and poor and minority shoppers who tend to use cash debit cards or not as lucrative credit cards to consumers that tend to be more educated, richer, and not minority. And so these are like knock-on effects that we can actually like pretty directly trace back to changes that happen post-Durban Amendment and in response to lost income. And it is so sad and irritating for me to have to like even just like just I think this is I think that this is so incurious. Just leave it out, right? Like just mm-hmm. pretend like don't even say you think this is gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. And it also has like pretty serious effects for the institutions that this regulator directly oversees yeah. versus merchants, which the, this regulator should not necessarily be. They're concerned not responsible about. for that. Yeah. No, I mean I that's the thing that is kind of wild about the whole thing is the Fed like this is kind of a strange way to phrase it, but like, why do they care so much about this? You know what I mean? Like, I get that, like, yeah. they're required to periodically review this and like, that's part of their like mandate, but there's lots of things they're technically required to do that they're like, oh, maybe we'll get to that next year. Like, this seems yeah. like a really weird one for them to weigh in. And kind of going back to your earlier point about didn't have this on my bingo card. Like, I don't get why in a year when bank profitability and sort of stability has been a real question mark and an area of concern for prudential regulators that they've decided to weigh in on the side of merchants to make their lives easier and potentially sort of put more challenges on banks. Like, I am not a fan of, like, whatever this is. And if you're going to do it, 
to your point, you should be curious about what all of the impacts of it are. So anyway, big, big thumbs down from me, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, watch this space for the second wave of fun unintended consequences as a result of interchange fee being reduced. (laughs) Am I right? I think so. I mean, I think the only sort of slight cheerful bit of news to this is I do think because of the original Durban Amendment, the industry has kind of moved off of debit interchanges like this is what we're going to hang our hats on from a revenue perspective. So even though debit is growing and obviously Mm -hmm. fintech sort of grew up in the shadow of the Durban Amendment, even like in fintech, like debit interchange only business models are kind of not in vogue anymore. And so maybe this will have a little less of a knock-on effect just because we've all kind of moved on from this profit pool. But yeah, I'm still not a fan. Well, what do you got for me? Well, all right. So I promised a little bit of scuttlebutt from Money 2020. So 1033 was a big one, as you might imagine. Yes, this is the section of Dodd-Frank that gives the CFPB the authority to regulate consumer-permissioned data sharing. And as listeners, I'm sure know, they came out with their proposed rules for how this is going to work. And I won't rehash all of the rules. I would say that generally speaking, it just kind of sort of sets things at kind of a table stakes level. Like it it didn't necessarily, in my opinion, advance the ball really far forward in terms of like, oh, now you must do this thing that no one in the market was already doing. It more sort of codified what the best practices are and kind of the current state in Mm -hmm. the U.S. today. So it's focused on transaction accounts, so checking accounts, uh, other deposit accounts, credit cards, digital wallets. It excludes other types of loans, wealth management, you know, crypto, payroll data. So it excludes a lot of stuff. And, you know, the overwhelming mandate and the thing they keep talking about from the Bureau's perspective as kind of their core goal is they want this to increase competition in the space. And they really, I think, if they were to try to pin it on a single metric that they're looking at for how successful this will be, it's how much more portable does this make banking customers across the industry? Like how much Mm -hmm. switching of bank accounts happens? How many sort of new tools get built to make it sort of push button easy to just move your account from one bank to another? That was also very much the goal in the UK, or one Mm -hmm. of the goals in the UK when they embraced open banking. Um, They haven't really seen a whole lot of actual switching yeah, behavior. Yeah, it seems also kind of like a strange goal. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> it's it's really weird. It's really weird. So that's like one area that I'm kind of like, eh, okay. And then, you know, there was a lot of discussion in Vegas last week around, well, what does this mean for Akoya, which is the mm-hmm. data aggregation company that's partially owned by some of the big banks yeah. and that has been sort of flexing its muscles, so to speak, in the space recently or trying to What does this mean for the financial data exchange, FDX, in terms of acting as a standard-setting body? It does seem likely, I think, that FDX is going to become the standard-setting organization for open banking in the U.S. Because there's really just no one else who's doing it. But there were some pretty specific requirements in the proposed rules around like what that independent standards body can and can't do. And I think that might lead to some changes in like the membership and who's on the board of FDX. Mm. I think it might lead to, you know, FDX having to sort of change their API specification a bit for how data sharing works, because that's what they've mostly been working on is the technical specification. You know, I think it'll be really interesting to see how this ends up getting applied to non-bank companies over $10 billion in assets in particular, or I should say over $10 billion in revenue. So there's different size requirements in terms of how big the company is and how quickly they have to comply with the new rules once they're finalized. And 
the biggest companies, both by asset size, so banks, and then uh, non-banks over $10 billion a year in annual revenue, they have to comply within the first six months after the rule is finalized. Wow. So say that it was finalized at, you know, like let's just say December of 2024, that would mean by June of 2024, they would need to be in compliance. And that's interesting because over $10 billion in revenue, that applies to Apple which operates a digital wallet and has a debit card and a credit card and other things. It applies to Block, owner of Cash App, Uh which offers a digital wallet and a debit card. You know, it would potentially apply to Walmart based on kind of what they're doing in financial services. And so, you know, I think the CFPB probably can't wait to pick a fight with those companies because that's kind of, I think, how Rohit Chopra thinks about the world. He comes from sort of an FTC background. So I think he has a, a very specific sort of like, anti-monopolistic, like I want to go after big tech kind of view. So how they sort of do this with Apple, how quickly Apple complies with it. Does Apple try to find Mm -hmm. ways to kind of drag its feet? I don't think Apple wants to share data, but like, especially if I was a bank, I'd be like, hey, you know, we have to pony up our data. You know, you need to do the same. So that'll be interesting. I know you had sort of a a open question around account to account payments, which really wasn't part of this at all. You know, I, I don't, like I said, I think I talked a little about open banking, last week, um, very passionately about how I use my data. I actually don't use my data to switch banks. I use my data to build my budget. Right. I have, you know, when I visited South Korea last year, I got to see a little bit of open, like their practice of open banking Mm. in the form of A to A payments. Mm -hmm. And basically we went to like a food market and my friend didn't have a lot of cash. And most of these vendors actually didn't take card. They accepted A to A payments. And so my friend would open, you know, I think South Korea maybe has like for sizable retail banks. She opened up her app. She just typed in someone's number at their, you know, like on their food stall. And then she just, you know, and she actually like, and the security thing was that she like showed them her phone and was like, is this you? And they were like, yeah. And then she would send them the money. And, you know, I think we kind of get some of that experience with with Zelle, which is like fake open banking. And, uh, but uh, to see the A to A payments and how, you know, I like even to just think like, we can't really do that in the United States. Or if we do it, it has to be through Zelle, which is this integration and, and not everyone has it. And so I, you know, it was so, you know, you can, I think you can go in a lot of places with data. I think, you know, the ways that I found open banking to be the most powerful and like what I would think of as kind of transformative for people's lives is this payments aspect of it. And that the openness would kind of force like some interoperability. And it's kind of hard to get excited about the proposal that, there is here already. And to be like, okay, well, now we all just kind of have to be singing from the same songbook versus like, I am getting actually new capabilities that will make it, will make money move more intuitively. And, you know, I, I don't know, I just kind of don't, it'll just be kind of interesting to see how it like pans out. But I just don't think that like account switching is also like a great goal. And I don't think most people switch accounts. And I don't know, you know, to your point in places where this functionality is enabled, that's not really how people use open banking. And if that's the point of open banking, you might not see a lot of people kind of activating these capabilities and taking advantage of them in the way that we're seeing like open banking be adopted in different countries through the payment, the ease of payments. Yeah, no, I think that's fair, right? I mean, I think that we don't see switching in the UK. And I think this idea that you can like, break up with your bank, which is the specific language that they use when they talk about this over at the Bureau. I don't think that is an accurate sort of reflection of 
how consumers interact with financial services today, right? Because, and Ron mm-hmm. Shevlin's done a lot of research on this over at Cornerstone Advisors, but like people open more accounts, they don't close the accounts they have. And so I don't necessarily think that this is going to drive people to like close accounts or like necessarily mm-hmm. switch their primary bank. And we already had, you know, open banking that was kind of janky in some ways, but like we had it. And it, the yeah. thing that drove people to sign up for more apps and to try things and to like have a, a larger web of relationships with different financial services providers, those open banking things were like account verification, right? So like that made it yeah. way, way easier to sign up for Chime when you could just automatically connect your existing checking account, verify it, you know, connect it mm-hmm. to transfer money over like that friction being removed, that was a big unlock for enabling that. Mm-hmm. It's not driving switching necessarily, but it is driving like a more competitive ecosystem. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. I also think the other thing that kind of isn't getting enough discussion is the requirement that financial services providers, data providers under this requirement have to share like pricing information. I thought that was pretty interesting because pricing is one of those ones that everybody fights over uh, in the open banking space in the absence of rules because banks tend to think of it as, well, our pricing is proprietary. It's the output of these proprietary underwriting models that we build. We don't want our competitors to know how we price you know, individual users because we don't want them getting gleaning Mm -hmm. insights into like how we do this. Like pricing is a competitive advantage. And, you know, I know for a fact that the Bureau received comments from banks saying don't don't include pricing. That's not a reasonable requirement. And to the Bureau's credit, I think they did keep that in there. So you have to disclose fees, you have to disclose interest rates, you have to make that data available if the consumer wants to share it. And to me, I think the coolest thing that could come out of this, and maybe if they expand it into loans and other types of product categories, which I wish they had done this mm-hmm. first time, but like to me, like interest rates and pricing is the area where you could see a lot of innovation get built on top of it. Because if you have to share that information, and I as an alternative provider can get that information with consumer permission, then I can go out and shop on your behalf for better rates, right? And like I think a big right. thing that causes people to not switch or to not chase higher interest rates or to chase lower interest rates if we're talking about credit cards or whatever is it's really hard for a provider to say, hey, you should switch. You should do this other thing because they might have a hunch that you could get a better rate somewhere else, but they don't know. They can't say like, Kia, I can save you X amount of money per year or I can get you X amount more money per year if you do this thing. And now that you have to share pricing information and that's like in the Mm -hmm. requirement, I actually think that might drive... Not again, not switching per se, but it will drive more yeah. competitive like price shopping behavior. And to me, that's one of those right. ones that if you're like a lower income consumer and you just, you know, you don't have a lot of cognitive capacity for doing other things besides like taking care of your family and working, shopping and comparing prices is one of those ones that gets tossed out the window immediately. And so right, the idea that right. you can build services that would help lower income consumers shop for better prices automatically, that is appealing to me. Yeah, I mean, I am curious to see what comes out of it. I don't know how much the world changed when this proposal dropped. I don't and think it did. It I think it was more like a nerd thing for those of us who've been like waiting yeah. and waiting to see the rules. I know some like sort of public policy people who were like Christmas morning kind of thing, like when it drops. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it probably isn't quite as special as that. To your point about A to A payments, uh, did you see um, the Chase's announcement with MasterCard? 
No, I did so, not. Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, this one was cool. So this one was Chase rolling out their own A to A payments functionality for okay. consumers that have recurring bills. So the idea is basically like, okay. you know, if you are paying, you know, whatever bill, we can enable, or you know, it's a merchant that has a, a bill that they're you know charging on a recurring basis. We can enable mm-hmm. you, the merchant, to accept payment from customers just directly from their bank account. And it's enabled by a partnership with MasterCard, which bought Finicity, which is one of the big Plaid competitors. And you may remember that when Visa tried to buy Plaid, Plaid. this was exactly the kind of thing they were trying to prepare for was, hey, what if banks want to start pushing in the direction of account-to-account payments rather than running everything over the card rails? So, like, Visa, uh-huh. I think, is probably tearing their hair out seeing this partnership between MasterCard, who was allowed to buy Finicity, and yeah. Chase, who's sort of embracing account-to-account payments. So, I don't know. Maybe even though the rules didn't, like, give a full-throated endorsement to account-to-account payments and, like, payment initiation, maybe we'll still end up uh-huh. with more to account-to-account payments. Don't, like – I mean, this is this is neither here nor there, but I don't think a lot of people use bill pay no. when it's enabled – Either like I think on the bank side, and you know, speaking for myself, I don't use. It's bill mostly pay. third-party um, billers that you go through direct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if people use. Well, this. I mean, this is not the account-to-account payment I was. No, no. Well, no. And, and, oh wow, it's easier to pay my bills. God, it's so. Well, exciting. I mean, so do you? Um, the one I've noticed recently is Verizon has made a big push on this in the last like two or three years. Oh, Verizon does really want you to pay from your bank and, and they I definitely you to use do my credit. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. I use like a credit card that comes. Obviously, I use a credit sure. card, but it has cell phone insurance, and so. Uh, but I have received pretty aggressive marketing from Verizon to tr- to use my bank account to pay yes. stuff. I mean, only use like my like student loans and my loans to for bank account payments. I don't pay any bills. Well, in the future, so. they're going to want you to do even more of that. So I think that will be. Uh, well, in the future, where they take away my credit card, they cap my credit card interchange. Dick Durbin's coming for uh, it. My cre- take away my card rewards. Yep. You can't make a single cent on any debit card swipe. I guess we will just be forced into this A-to-A world. <laughs> but a lot of things are going to have to happen for me to alter my payments. Um, speaking of payments, hmm. can I take us way, 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 way back to checks? Have you heard of a check before? Are you familiar with this form of payment, Alex? So I have this vague memory of being like 12 and my mom showing me how uh-huh. to write a check. And yeah. I even remember, she doesn't listen to this podcast, so I'll tell the story real quick. She would occasionally send my brother and I to um, the corner convenience store to get stuff because we were like big uh-huh. enough to go. And she'd give us a check and she wouldn't fill out the amount. So she'd sign it, but she wouldn't nice. fill out the amount. And oh, man, a blank there check. There were times where we were like, yeah, you know, maybe we'll grab a few extra things that she doesn't necessarily need to know uh-huh. about. And I remember occasionally yeah. getting the question like, so how much was it? And we're like, you know, it was more expensive than we thought it was going to be. You know, that kind of yeah, thing. Inflation, yeah. mom. You would not believe what they're charging for. It was for. weird. Yeah, I don't it was even know weird. what you'd I mean, buy at a gas station. She yeah. probably knew exactly what we were up to, but we felt pretty clever at the time. So yes, checks. A vehicle checks. to slightly deceive your parents when they give you, when they foolishly give you a blank check. Steal money from your yeah. mom is what yeah. I hear. Yeah, so that's actually a really perfect, that small instance of check fraud <laughs> is a really perfect segue into what I wanted to talk talk about, which is that checks are not dead and they are in fact vehicles of fraud. Yeah, Um, they are. So I learned from your interview with Mark Gould, the Fed's chief payments Mm -hmm. executive, that in 
2022, the Fed cleared $9 trillion worth of checks, a trillion with a T. <laughs> That's a lot um, of checks. I have That's a lot, a lot of, of checks. It's so many. It's too, arguably, it's too yes. many checks. Visa would definitely agree with that statement. And so I came across this article from in the Washington Post about who still uses checks. Mm. And so they looked at a survey of that the Federal Reserve runs asking Americans about their financial habits. And they found that as recently as 2021, checks make up 4% of transactions and more than half of Americans haven't written a check in the last mm. month. They are most commonly used in transactions of $500 or more. But even in those transactions, we people only use checks about 14% of the time. Usage is more common among older Americans, like retirement age, compared to younger Americans. And then the Washington Post also found, pretty interestingly, that checks seem to be favored by individuals who identify as white, with 51% of these individuals having written a check in the last month, which was higher than other ethnicities or race racial groups. Mm. The Washington Post kind of postulates that this reflects that not necessarily the bankedness of individuals who are white, but the maybe underbanked or the unbanked um, status of individuals who are not mm. white and that there may be some historical distrust of banked institutions, which is actually like kind of a bigger sure. problem for banks and regulators yeah. because, you know, many like whatever payment you're using, that's not a check or is outside of the financial system is obviously like, you know, just slightly less mm -hmm. secure, slightly less regulated. And so there's a lot of usage of cash. Yeah among some of these consumers. And then checks are more common when paying for services like contractors, charities, taxes, and landlords. And I don't know if that has to do with, you know, processing fees, transaction processing fees for electronic payments Could be. that we've probably gotten at in yeah. the past. So anyways, I'm bringing this up because checks aren't dead and also checks are super ripe for fraud. And check fraud is, you know, bank director is becoming increasingly aware of bank directors telling mm. us that they are dealing and talking about check fraud in the boardroom. And so, you know, that kind of signifies a volume or a magnitude that is, you know, reaching this kind of strategic level or is kind of showing up in a meaningful way in the bottom line, right? It's starting to impact results. So my colleague, Laura Alex, just wrote about how big this problem is. She found that, you know, Regions Financial reported, last quarter they reported $82 million in check fraud, $53 million in the third quarter. And they think that, fraud losses will normalize around $25 million a quarter, which is kind of crazy. Even as check volume has declined 7% between 2018 and 2021, suspicious activity reports that involve fraudulent checks are skyrocketing. They are doubling mm -hmm. year over year. Check fraud costs about $6 a check to manage, and it can take up to like, I believe, 50 to 60 days to figure out a bad check has been passed between two banks. And there is like, this is like a hot potato, it feels like, for banks. And it kind of depends on if the check was washed. Mm -hmm. So if like the check was legitimate and then was like written legitimately and then maybe washed or if the check was fraudulent to begin with. There is like a tech ang angle here. Fraudsters open dummy accounts at large banks and then use RDC or remote deposit to deposit a washed check so they don't have to interact with a teller. They can also, you know, take advantage of the time lag between the two, the clearing and the settlement to, you know, get the money and then close the account or like move the money out before the money is like recalled. Mm -hmm. And then something that like really human and like kind of upsetting to think about is I've heard I was in a peer exchange and someone said that someone getting arrested in their lobby is for passing a bad check is a weekly occurrence. Wow. 
And what happens is that these like gangs that are are stealing checks, like in their in his case, his bank, they're these are stolen mm-hmm. checks. They are finding people who are unhoused, and they're like kind of like cleaning them up and sprucing them up and giving them like a haircut, and then bringing them, giving them fake credentials, and then they go into these banks to try to cash the oh, check. Wow. And then that is the person who gets arrested oh. in the lobby. And this is, it just felt like so, so yeah. sad. And I just can't imagine this happening we- on a weekly basis. Like this is, this is a crime with victims. And I am kind of fascinated that this payment method that persists in a lot of ways that we, I think we were just kind of moving mm-hmm. away from and is so vulnerable. And also banks are just like, Banks are just mm-hmm. doing it, you know, I, and I don't know, like, I don't know kind of what banks can kind of do to just be like, we should be trying to get move every single person away from issuing tax. Yeah. But I just wanted to bring that to you because I think it's kind of crazy. It, it seems so antiquated that in 23, we're talking about checks, but in this way that it's like causing a lot of yeah. losses for yeah. banks. And yeah, so do you have any thoughts on how tech can solve this problem? Well, yeah, I mean, we need to stop writing so many checks. I mean, I it was interesting, right? When we were talking to Mark Gould at the Federal Reserve, we sort of asked him about like checks and other forms of payments and how real-time payments might sort of eat into checks or whatever. And the Fed's perspective, I think, is that, or I should say Mark's personal perspective because he wasn't speaking on behalf of the Fed. But, yeah. you know, Mark's perspective was that, Uh, Yeah, none of us are speaking on behalf of our employers, just to be clear. His perspective seemed to be that, like, as long as there was one person who wanted to write a check, it was the Fed's responsibility to help process that payment, essentially. And that, like, there was going to be no sunsetting of payment methods. And that it's not the Mm -hmm. place of, like, infrastructure providers to sort of make value judgments, if you will, on, like, which payment method is better than another. And I thought that was pretty interesting because, like— you know, you contrast like checks with like cash, like cash has a different set of values, right? Like cash can be a store of value. Cash is anonymous. Like there's a set of things that cash has that are very unique attributes that just no other form of payment has. Checks though, to your point, like, yes, they avoid processing fees for electronic payments. But when we move again, back going back to account to account payments, when we move more over to account to account payments, I mean, I would think that we could eat into a ton of volume for checks with account-to-account yeah. payments. And, you know, if it's moving in real time using RTP or FedNow, you know, we don't have to suffer the delay of, you know, checks having to wait mm-hmm. to clear. Mark made that point very strongly that, like, speed can actually remove the opportunity for fraud because you don't have fraudsters playing games with, like, check clearance windows. And, like, that's how a lot of check fraud yeah. works is, you know, sort of counting on the float and the the settlement windows. So, you know, I think there are rails and mechanisms we have in place that could solve this, but you do need to drive people over to other forms of payments and get them to stop using checks. And, you know, I'll I'll speak as a white person briefly. I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a... Ch- could you just represent the check? I'll do my best. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, well, when you were describing the things that uh, people still write checks for, I was like, yep, yep, that sounds right. I mean, it's a lot of writing checks to contractors. It's a lot of... I guess what I would say is it's a lot of areas where like software and digitization haven't quite taken hold yet, right? Like my contractor that I work with right now on this project, he's in his 70s, you know, he like lost his phone the other day for like a few weeks and just was like, yeah, you know, I don't know where it is. You know, like, I mean, so paying him via electronic payments would have been challenging. But I do think, and this harkens back to something we've talked about in other podcasts, yeah, I know you're you're a capitalist through and through, and I'm like secretly a socialist. But <laughs> I will say that like one of the things I find in other countries, and you reference like South Korea as another example of this, 
There are other places in the world where the government or the you know government agencies that are responsible for like financial services infrastructure they play a more active role in like driving consumer adoption of these different services and mm-hmm. i do think to a degree that's how you get to the long tail of this stuff right where it's like hey you know this contractor who works in montana and who's not particularly sort of savvy about you know different fintech apps and zelle and whatever like you need to kind of get to this person a different way. And I think there is that kind of long tail. And if you don't put the full court press on them, and I will say in defense of the Fed, they had a booth at Money 2020 and were actively like selling Fed now. So they're out there selling to their credit. But, you know, I think it's one of those challenges where if you don't do that, what you end up with is this infrastructure that is not used enough to have like volume and like protections and, yeah. you know, like all of the sort of things we have in place. We were just talking about debit cards, like fraud costs have come down because we've gotten really good at like apparently reducing the costs of fraud in card rails. The more people who leave checks, the more it's just sort of this barren wasteland where bad behavior can happen and not get caught. And I, yeah. I to your point, yeah. I really feel bad for the banks too, right? Because it's like they still have to honor checks. They still have to accept checks. But I'm sure they've retasked a lot of their internal priorities to higher volume payment rails. And so checks is like this sort of open mm-hmm. avenue for attack that you still have to have open, but you can't dedicate the same resources yeah. to. So I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm kind of coming around to the idea that maybe there should be slightly more of a, a forced sunsetting of certain things. Like it kind of reminds me of when yeah. we moved over from uh, MagStripe cards to chip and pin on credit cards and debit cards in the US. The, yeah, yeah, like the, the, the switch to EMV and like, merchants and others like howled about that and were so mad about it. But the reality is the incentives that the card networks put in place to drive that switch, we switched, it all worked. No one is like, you know, bent out of shape about it now. And the reality is we basically retired a more vulnerable form of payment where fraud can happen more easily. It's gone now. Like that Magstripe fraud is not a thing anymore because we solved it. I kind of think checks deserve the same kind of scrutiny. Yeah, that's really interesting. Also, I don't write checks very often, but I get paid in checks a lot in the mail. Yeah, sure. I get a lot of checks. And I have become so concerned. I and like as a soccer referee, you actually have to kind of like you have to maintain like a list of the games you've done and have you gotten paid for them. And I've been so worried that I'm gonna have a stolen check in the mail and I'm gonna just be like this check never showed up. When did you issue it to me? And and like thinking about that, and it, it has actually kind of made me feel a little bit mm-hmm. less secure about that. And then and more partial to, I'm on like four mm. different assigning platforms and some of them do the, like you can pay my account on the assigning platform and then I can mm. disperse it to my bank. And it is kind of a pain to like maintain, you know, my bank details yeah. on all these different websites, but it feels now a lot more secure and, and I get my money faster too because- you know, they disperse it a lot closer and then I receive it. And so it's just been funny to to be like, man, what do, what do I have to do to get these soccer signers <laughs> stop cutting me checks and, and getting on these well, if, platforms? Uh, <laughs> so how many checks have they have referees reported no. stolen? You know, so I would also love this forced migration. And and I, I also don't know, you know, kind of what like, is there a way that you could like make it more expensive to issue a check? Right. Like it feels like checks yeah. are very free in a way that like Sometimes like sending money isn't free. And I wonder, you know, is there some sort of design here or, you know, I don't know, like with RDC, you know, because I remember they wanted to make RDC like expensive when when it first came out. 
I wonder if there's a way that you can put in controls that would, you would only do it if it's legit or, or I don't know, like maybe the criminals will pay like five bucks to deposit a bad check remotely. So. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I think that the only, the only other thing I'll say on that front is, and not to go too conspiracy corner on you here, but I do <laughs> think that there is these sort of like kind of hidden incentives that we don't always see that affect these things, right? So like just as an example, the big core providers make a lot of money helping banks process check payments. I, I just, you know, from folks nice. I've talked to who've sort of seen this up close, like that's a big revenue driver. Kind of, again, to your point about like, how many checks were processed last year? Like we don't think about it, but obviously all those <laughs> checks are going through systems and getting processed. And so there are companies mm-hmm. that benefit from that. It's not just the Fed, you know, going, oh, you know, we'll support whoever's there. Yeah, someone has an yeah, interest Yeah, so there in is like an checks, embedded so. interest in checks. And like when I look at, again, referencing RTP and FedNow, like the problem with those networks is no banks are signed up as senders, right? So a lot of them are signed up to receive mm-hmm. real-time payments, but none of them are signed up for sending. And I was talking to someone about like why that is. And one of the things they were saying that I thought was really interesting was they're like, it's actually kind of hard for banks to sign up for it because you have to go through like a technology platform in order to get it, right? Yeah, you have to use some platform mm. to get access to this functionality. And particularly if you're a smaller bank, you're not going to build that technology yourself. Yeah. You're going to go through the cores. And the cores aren't offering a lot of mm-hmm. send functionality or send use cases send. on faster payment rails yet. They have it on their roadmap. They're going to get to it. But yeah, the conspiracy part of my brain is like, maybe they kind of want to drag that out keep the sweet check revenue coming in because like, you know, I, I think you would lose money if you were to switch over to these faster payment rails because they are really cheap. They would be safer. And so there is always someone who loses when we make these transitions. And I think from a, a public policy perspective, it would be nice for regulators to think about like someone has to lose, but who do we want to lose and who do we want to win? Yeah. Uh, all right. Should we do a little wait, but why? Yeah. So... I think. Oh, I, think I have. I have a good one question. for you. I have Sorry. a good one for you. I know. I know. Normally, okay. you ask me the wait, but why? But I'm going to flip this around on you today. So, you sent me an article that was talking about the sort of sentiment from kind of like a stock market perspective on sort of tech-focused banks and sort of like what it means to be a tech-focused bank and trying to sort of parse out like, well. How does the market treat tech-focused banks? And do they have higher valuation levels? Are they valued more by the market than others? And the point of the article was just that it's kind of nuanced because there will be sort of crypto-focused banks, for example, that are really struggling. And then there'll be other sort of tech-focused banks that have a particular focus on a different product category, like payments, as an example, and like facilitating payments where it's like, wow, Mm -hmm. these banks are you know, doing really well and the market seems to really value them. And it seems to sort of take the the fact that they are these tech enabled platforms for facilitating payments like that's a they view that as a good business model and one maybe that's a little durable in sort of changing macroeconomic environments. So I read this article and the thought that occurred to me was I have a really hard time parsing out a couple different factors and how they overlap. Okay. So on the one hand, are you a bank or are you a fintech company? And then, okay. depending on if you're a bank or a fintech company, what particular vertical you're in, what area of financial services you specialize in, and then how does the stock market sort of value the combination of 
tech, financial services, and whatever that specific vertical is. And using payments as an example, this article was kind of kind of talking a little bit about the fact that some of these banks that are really sort of deep into the payments facilitation space, really good business, durable in different models, valued by the market, seen as sort of, I think, a good hedge against some of the sort of macroeconomic conditions that are dragging down earnings for other banks. And yet, Kia Hazlitt, <laughs> fintech companies like Ajin, for example, that do payments and that only okay. do payments are absolutely getting hammered right now by the stock market. And they're just like, they're having these yeah. massive sell-offs. Yeah. Their valuations are getting like literally like cut in half. And yet they're both in the, the same business. And so I'm trying to sort of understand like, was Ajin and other sort of peers of it just overpriced relative to everyone else in the payment space, including banks? And this is bringing their valuation down more in line with that. Is there some sort of inherent advantage to being both a bank and a tech-focused company working in payments? Why does this apply to certain verticals like payments, but not other areas like, you know, I don't think tech-enabled lenders particularly get a valuation bump over sort of non-tech-enabled lenders. So like, what is this sort of confluence of being sort of tech-forward, working in a specific vertical, and either having a bank charter or not? Yeah, that's so funny. Okay, there's a lot of questions there. And I did not expect these questions when I sent you <laughs> that you. article. So props. I, I spun it in I a totally surprised. different direction. Um, yeah, you, we went in a completely different direction. That's really interesting. I, you know, as someone who focuses on banks and doesn't actually really focus on valuation or stocks, And I don't either, just to be clear. Like, I am not an expert in this, which is why I have this question. Right. And, you know, the other thing, too, about banks is banks, public banks tend to be valued on a price-to-tangible book value basis as much as they would love to be valued yes. on their earnings, you know, their um, price to earnings, whereas that price to tangible book value valuation is not available to tech That's companies. Right. That's it, right. Am I right? They you are they are valued on yep. future earnings and often Wrong vibes, vibes. what's yep. hot. And so, you know, I think if you are thinking about Ajin, Aiden, yeah. is it Auden? Ajin. Ajin's valuation and you're saying, well, it's halved from what period of time? Are we talking about from its peak and then it's at halved? And do we think it was potentially overvalued and now it's maybe correctly valued? Do we think it was appropriately valued at its peak and now it's undervalued? And the other thing too is like if you theoretically earn it, you know, the stock price is supposed to be like what? Like mm-hmm. discounted forward-looking earnings, which is not how anyone <laughs> no. thinks about stock price. That if they are making less money on their core mm-hmm. one business that they have, then yes, that should be reflected that they have a, mm-hmm. a decreased earnings outlook. I think one thing that's really interesting about banks who play in the tech space is that, you know, having that bank, that magical bank yeah. charter, you know, often provides you with a series of privileges and a different mm-hmm. potential funding structure, whether or not that's working out to bank's advantage or not, it is still really, really different than the funding structure that is available to tech companies that don't have a bank charter or especially consumer lenders that don't have a bank right. charter, right? Because they th- you don't get that that super cheap funding. I think something that's really interesting about tech-forward banks that might be enjoying a higher valuation, one, banks aren't like crushing right. the stock market right now. Like it's like the investors mm-hmm. are not hot on banks right now. And they are not hot on banks because of reasons that are really specific to being a bank, which includes, you know, Many banks are currently liability sensitive and they are getting crushed by higher rates. But the banks that are tech banks that are doing really well, they are asset sensitive, like I've talked to you about the Bancorp. 
And so the Bancorp is able to have a more predictable beta. Their assets are repricing really quickly. So, I mean, maybe the sentiment isn't really about their non-interest income through payments, or that's just kind of icing on the cake, but the cake itself mm -hmm. is still really, really good. And so I've just been thinking a lot, like when we talk about, I think what, you know, what's interesting is you kind of see these companies as being the same, and then you're curious about the difference. But I think in the rising rate environment and what it's doing to different business models and, you know, how is, you know, ZERP, the loss of ZERP impacts business models, how, why no one wants to use this one payments company and they want to use other payments companies. It's not like payments are going away. So it's like probably more company specific, but that the differentiated business model of having the bank charter plus having the tech capabilities or ostensibly being sensitive, asset sensitive and, and capitalizing from higher rates is a benefit. And you can kind of see this delineation between banks and fintechs that might be doing things that are kind of similar to these tech banks. I think that's right. I mean, I think that it's one of those situations where like two things can be true at the same time, right? So it's like, you know, and, and I, I I, know. the human mind struggles with this, as we've seen in a number of different contexts recently. But like, I think that's kind of the issue that I come back with is like, you know, when you look at like Ajin and some of the other sort of payments focused fintech companies that have just been getting hammered, mm -hmm. I think investors are saying, you're not worth what we thought you were worth before. But it's right. easy to sort right. of see that and go, oh, well, does that mean that like payments isn't like a good business? And then on the bank side, you know, you have investors looking at these banks that have kind of turned into more of like kind of transactional businesses, right? Like we're not going to hold any assets. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just we're not going to like really worry about like sort of managing like liability risk. Like we're just going to be a machine and we're going to churn through all of these yep. different transactions and collect fees along the way. Payments being probably the best example of a business model that lends itself to that. And we're going to build the technology necessary to sort of get involved in that business. And I think bank investors look at that and go, this is amazing. And I, I think the reality is, they're both kind of saying the same thing, which is payments is an amazing business. Payments is a growing business. Right. Payments is a space where you can build a very sort of asset light, high revenue, predictable sort of money making machine. The difference is solely just that banks have historically been held down in their earnings because of the way that their value has been looked at. And we just went through this right. psychotic era of fintech supervaluations where, you know, and I, I think I wrote about this when Ajin had this problem this one day, like was like a month, month and a half ago, where their earnings just got slammed. Like, I actually think that they're still a really strong business. It's just that the stock market is kind of weird and they had right. to sort of reprice themselves. And so I think it's probably less of a delta between these things than we think. But it is really interesting to watch bank business models and fintech business models collide uh -huh. in, a, in a strange way because uh -huh. you know, I think fintech companies are sort of coming around to the fact that like, wow, you know, there's some things about being a bank that look really nice from a business model perspective. And I think at the same time, banks are looking at some fintech business models and going, wow, that like that transactional model where you can just sort of collect fees, like that looks pretty nice. And so there's sort of this kind of slow merging together of business models. And, and the stock market, I think, is the one caught in the middle going like, how are we supposed to value these companies? Like, is it a bank? Is it a technology right. company? Like, what's their durable advantage? Uh -huh. You know, what's the structure of their, you know, kind of existing margin? How can they expand that over time? Like, all of those questions that you used to have very clear answers to as a stock market analyst, because, like, I'm looking at a bank. This is how I value it. I feel like those are kind of what's being challenged, and that's why there's these weird sort of ups and downs right now with these specific companies. Yeah. 
I mean, I've previously established I like just don't understand how fintechs <laughs> no are does. valued, especially when yeah. they're not really making money. The other thing too, and this is kind of related, but not uh-huh. directly to your point, is I've been very curious this year how bank stock prices translate, if at all, to depositor sentiment. Because, you know, for, you know, the spring banking stress, we were th- we were seeing, you know, the SVB free fall. And then we saw like PacWest, right? So we saw PacWest have a stock sell-off. And it wasn't clear what how that translated into deposit runoff. Because they don't necessarily, like, the depositors of a bank are not necessarily the shareholders right. of the bank. And it is not really clear what if all, like, that would, that would translate, especially, like, the stock price to deposit runoff, mm-hmm. not deposit runoff to stock price. And so to think about like, you know, with the revaluation of some of these things, like how how does how does sentiment like influence, mm-hmm. if at all, a business mm-hmm. model or or results, right? Like I sometimes think in banking, like they they're just they're yeah. actually just kind of divorced, or they're not, you know, for me as someone who mm-hmm. doesn't invest in banks directly, I, they're just not as relevant. I care more about kind of how much money a bank made, not necessarily did its stock price go up a lot and what does it mean for its valuation. I really only think about valuations with deals. So that was like, <laughs> well, the mystery does, continues for it me. It does. Uh, well, I keep, yeah. I, stock prices really mostly is. I, I think I mean, <laughs> one thing you said there at the end that I just, I'll put a final point on is there is something very healthy about just not looking at stock prices, honestly. And I, I kind of feel like, and you've, you've gotten into this problem with like the SoFi bros on Twitter, right? Like there is a population oh. of people. I don't, <laughs> sorry, I don't know. If we say it two more times, they'll like appear behind you. Um, oh my God. I'm they sorry. No, I, mean, no, I won't mention this on Twitter. I promise. Uh, Kia hates hashtag SoFi. No, I mean. <laughs> I am a user of SoFi. Like I don't even know. I don't even understand oh, how I came to be in their ire. I, I got they mad. They're so so yeah, mad. Yes. Okay. Go say what you're going to say about the SoFi because they're so they're yes, so specific exactly. about and that, the that's stock my, price. Right? That's the thing I, I notice on Twitter. Just as one example of a broader trend, which is like people care way too much about what stock prices are doing or where they are, and so it's like SoFi's up. We're all millionaires. This is greater. SoFi's down, but I'm holding. And here's why you're a moron for not and blah blah blah. And the reality is. Having worked at a bunch of these businesses, including ones that are public companies, they don't know what's going on. Like, like the company is just trying to run its business, yeah. create value for customers, and then every quarter be able to tell a reasonably not scary story to shareholders so they don't all just flee for the exits, right? And sometimes you screw that up, or sometimes you right. just don't have a good story to tell, and you have a really bad quarter, and your you know your stock price goes down. But like, it's so divorced from the fundamentals of how these businesses work that when you said like, I don't really look at stock prices unless it's a deal. I just look at like the actual earnings of the bank. Like those SoFi bros would be so much better off just never being able to see the stock price and just having to analyze the fundamentals of the business because I don't think they do that at all. Speaking of also banks that need to be on this list, I don't think SoFi is in this like bank tech list. And I think they're one of the most interesting, like, because they also don't really right. report their earnings as a bank. So maybe we need to, pa- maybe like after Is they it? report earnings, maybe for the yeah. December show, we'll talk about how SoFi, what does SoFi identify as and how should they be valued and why don't they just report net interest income? Like, uh, well, that, that does anyway. sound like a very good way okay. to rant about. <laughs> so to end the show, Kia and, and, Listeners, in the interest of not having a conversation that goes on for the next 40 minutes, because we have much more on our ally that we could talk about, 
We we're tried. Trying to we really tried. We're trying to keep it punchy. So the last thing we're going to talk about is our new favorite segment, Go Off Kia, where I ask Kia to come find to go find some story out there that just fascinates her or that she wants to just sort of rant about for a second. And you always find the best stories. So I know you you have one oh, or maybe you. a couple that are linked by a theme. Okay. Yeah, I'll right. summarize them really quickly. So in the spirit of vintage <laughs> payment methods, there have been some hilarious, incredibly amusing stories about how coins so are So coins like, like quarters the and dimes and pennies and, okay, okay. yeah, yeah. Not, yes. not like, we're not talking yeah, like, like yeah. tokens or like... You know, cash cr- currency, but I, well, smaller I mean, than the cash? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. We're, <laughs> okay. not, we're never Just talking about crypto. Just to be clear, when Got I it, talk okay. about coins, With that I'm disclaimer never out of the way. Crypto. So stories about coins. Um, coins. So the first one is that probably my favorite crime story of 2023 is that four men stole two million dimes worth about $230,000 from a truck that was making a delivery from a federal mint to a regional reserve bank. They were only able to launder 5,200 of these dimes before being caught using various Coinstar machines up and down the East Coast and apparently four different banks in the suburban Philadelphia area. And then the second one is that, you know, there's been some like uh, payment disputes, like petty payment disputes. And and th- this most recent one is that a Colorado judge ruled that m- the more than 6,500 pounds of loose change was not considered a proper form of payment for a defendant to pay off like a $23,000 wow. like settlement in a legal it wasn't, dispute. It wasn't re- they. It, he, the judge said that this does not count as legal, a wow. way to legally settle this dispute, wow. even if it is legal tender. Apparently, the defendant had taken coins that were neatly organized and then dumped them loosely and randomly into a metal container. In the order, the judge said that while coins are technically legal tender, paying such a large amount in coins would reduce the settlement because of the time and expense required to accept it. And I just think that this is kind of a really interesting, these two things like kind of speak to an interesting thing. In, and I don't even want to say banking because yeah. this is kind of outside of banks, yeah. but in the form of money, which banks often deal with, and that, you know, coins are seen yeah. as kind of a burden. They are, you know, you can't launder two million Apparently coins not. expeditiously. And that's probably why we we don't see when someone steals $2 million, yeah. they don't do it in the form of dimes. And then that also, you know, people understand coins to be annoying to deal with, annoying to store, heavy. They understand that we don't really have ways to sort coinage efficiently. I don't know if like in $23,000 in coins would have ever been efficiently and seriously taken as payment, but certainly in 2023, it's not. And it's really interesting to think about like the role that, you know, if we're thinking talking about checks and at least checks serve yeah. a purpose of like yeah, large yeah. payments to contractors, coins are really not serving that purpose. They kind of serve this purpose of like exact change, but for very yeah. specific small amounts. And we kind of use, we kind of just assume coins will be used in certain ways and we won't. And like, actually we are now saying like they will not be allowed to be used in other ways. And, you know, I don't know if you remember the other time I was thinking about coins was during the early days of the pandemic. There was like a coin shortage because there was an interruption in circulation. So it was really, it's been fun to think about like the role that coins pay in payments infrastructure and that like where, you know, when we talk about like the Federal Reserve is committed to cashing the last check and like, 
you know, what is like, what is like the U.S. Mint doing over here, right? Like two million dimes were stolen. You were transporting seven hundred thousand dollars in dimes, which also like, <laughs> that's too many dimes. Like, who around the country need is, yeah. is like need my dimes. Gets the dimes, you know, Fed. Like we we. I know. And so I just, I've been fascinated by these, like, this, like, <laughs> subgenre of, like, coin journalism and coin shenanigans. Yes. And so I wanted to put that on your radar. Did you have an emotional reaction? Oh, Do you have any jokes I you want to make I had, I had about a huge the coins? emotional reaction to it. Um, so. Well, first of all, episode title, Coin Shenanigans. So to our friends who are editing this, yeah, that's that. Yeah. Never, Never cryptocurrency. cryptocurrency. It's always just coin shenanigans. Yeah. I mean, if I tried to pay my contractor in coins and dimes, he would burn my house to the ground, right? So like that is like a deeply petty <laughs> thing to do. I'm just fascinated by the person who tried to pay with like what six thousand pounds of loose coinage. Like that's insane. Like the amount of yes, that's, that's they tried crazy. to deliver them too. They like, they went all the way. They I mean, I'm glad the judge so, ruled that, so right? Because that's wild. like, I mean, that's they just were really like, committed. that is really antisocial behavior dressed up as like, technically, this is legal tender. You're like, no, like, don't be a dick. Like, this is like, not cool. Uh, so that I think is, I think the judge came down on the right side there. I will never not think about people robbing 2 million dimes off of a truck. Like, did you ever see, um, so in Groundhog's Day, the movie, when he's like, deciding he can do whatever he wants. Have you ever seen Groundhog's Day? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'll just no, just, no, no, really no, no, no. <laughs> until no. you directly ask, until you directly uh, ask, I was no. just gonna pretend. I was gonna be like, uh huh. This yeah. is terrible. Oh, yeah. Okay, I love well, that scene. Um, all right. So everyone who's listening, like, spam Kia's like email, LinkedIn, Twitter, and tell her like, this is totally unacceptable. All right, we'll solve this problem offline, and we'll we'll. Okay, the only scene now it's like not even relevant, but like the scene that is is he goes and he decides to do a bad thing. And he steals a couple bags of, I think, like, coins, like quarters or something off of this truck. And then he, like, spends the next day, like, rich because he has all these coins. But the part in that that they don't show is, like, yeah, what's the practical ability to, like, translate all of these coins you have? Like, where did these guys even store all the dimes? And, Mm -hmm. like... Yeah, apparently there is video of them stealing recycling bins. Amazing. And they were like yeah. after they stole like because they were just they just break into these sure, trucks sure. that are making these like long haul deliveries and they were stealing like shrimp and like they stole a bunch of like <laughs> tequila and they stole they like, stole appliances which I think honestly I think those are easier yeah. to launder in no, traffic really would, than right? dimes right you'd have to sell these dimes and you'd have to give a discount like. How much money would I pay for one hundred dollars in dimes? Well, probably then, twenty bucks, right? Like or the that's thing how you they'd do, have to do it. And I love this idea for like a, a thief or like a fraudster would be like, I'm just gonna cash in one dollar for the next forty years in dimes. You know, like such a small amount. You see, you get you like ha- an, yeah, an annuity in stolen dimes every week. But like the point of crime, well, like the point of crime tax, is like to though, like be able to live large and enjoy the spoils of your theft. Like the point of crime is not to uh-huh. like line your pocket with ten dollars extra of dimes every week. That's not gonna work, you know. And so like I yeah, I mean it's such an impractical thing. The only thing I'll say about this is coins are really useful for teaching like counting and money to kids. I'm finding, and my oh um, yeah, my that son is true. Got into a yeah. fight with a friend that he had made at school, and he's like, yeah, I'm not friends with him anymore. I'm like, oh okay, you know like kid stuff like whatever and he wouldn't really tell me what had happened and then the next day he was like yeah we're friends again and i'm like why and he's like he brought me a quarter and he showed me the quarter that his friend had brought him and he's like do we have a quarter that i can give to my friend and i'm like yeah i'm sure that we do and i had to like 
rummage through some stuff to find a quarter because we don't find even have that much coins at our house. So um, they do. Oh, we do, the but the piggy banks are bank? sort of a pain to liberate the coins from, and so they're more decorative. They're yeah, they're not. They they're are. not really. They yeah, really they're are. not designed to be broken into. Can we just really? Yeah. I mean, this is. I get it, yeah. but I'm sad and I'm annoyed. Banks used to offer coin counting for free, yeah. and it was like a benefit. Yeah. You would just walk in with your piggy bank and or like your sack, yeah. and then they had a machine and. Have you done this recently? Because they I don't haven't. have the coin counting machine anymore. There are some banks that if they don't specify that a branch has a coin counting machine, the only way you can deposit a lot of coins is come in with them pre-rolled. So oh. you have to sit your butt at your house uh-huh. in front of the TV or something and or some podcasts and <laughs> roll your own dang coins and bring them in. And I'm just like, it really this is. is a real step back. And I was actually like kind of shocked because, you know, like, I don't know, like your parents, oh, or sure, you ever yeah, did yeah. like the coin jar and then like every, yeah. and then yeah. like for Christmas, you would cash that in. Well, now it is a that little is... chore for you to do. You can't, you got to do a chore before you get your 20 bucks. It's crazy. For, or a hundred bucks from the bank. And you have to go change your money into other money. So then you can go use that money. Cause you're not like, you're probably not taking coin, like a roll of quarters. So have you ever, have you ever been behind someone who's tried to do that? Like Like in line, I've gotten behind people in line a couple of times who've tried to pay with like change. And it's like, you know, that'll be $26 and they try to pay in quarters and dimes and shit. And they're like pulling it out of like like, their thing. So, okay. One other thing on this, I didn't think it really is. This is like the song Christmas shoes. No, it really is. Remember (laughs) <laughs> and you're like you're behind that person instead of like buying the yeah candy you're like shoes, I just, you're like I can't oh my god I the other thing though that's funny about this is and we we should do a whole we should do a whole coin episode in the future but in Japan their currency is way heavier on coins so they have they have higher denomination coins right so oh. they have like a ten they have a ten yeah ten dollar coin yeah like a ten dollar I can't remember what ten, the yeah whatever, the currency whatever is. The they have like is. a ten dollar version they've got like a five dollar version so they have like like coins are real money and so. When I went over to visit my wife's parents, we went over to visit them in Japan. We went out and we were like going to the store and we were like, oh, this will be fun. Can can I go do this? Yeah. And that's what they have. And we say we'd go to this store and they're like, yeah, you know, here's some money. And they handed us like a coin purse and they had multiple coin purses like at their house, like. Like they were like, oh, Alex, you probably don't have a coin purse with you. Oh my God. No, I didn't. I didn't pack a. I didn't pack a coin purse. Yeah. They're like, oh, okay, you can borrow ours. And I legitimately had like 50 bucks in coins that were like in this coin purse, but I I couldn't keep it in my wallet and I couldn't keep it in my pocket. So I had to have a coin purse with me when I was in Japan. So I do think that there are other areas where coins make more sense, but like in the US, it's like. Too many dimes, man. Like that's you could be you 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 get buckets full of dimes. <laughs> you walk in, dimes. they're like, yeah, that's twenty bucks. Yeah, I think I'd be okay right. with they're coins not, if though. they like were money. And I think like these stories kind of show that like kind of coins kind of they're not really money. Yeah, the do- denominations are too small. Pennies are useless. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and we and we still make them, and sometimes I it know, costs more than a penny to make. Okay. Pen, well, though. this was a good one. I appreciate this rant. If anyone is needing to, you know, roll their own coins at home hopefully they'll listen to this podcast while they're rolling the coins so they can at least multitask a bit kia we'll be back at this next month but until then thank you for the time this was awesome all right well thanks so much looking forward to it thank you for listening to this episode of fintech takes stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and if you love fintech takes please tell a friend